0: Everything I did was, was always some way circling back to, to hockey and, you know, being, being an athlete, you don't want to let your teammates down. So that was a big thing for me is, you know, I, I didn't want to ever let anyone down. I didn't want to be hurt. You know, I thought I could contribute. Um, and there's this, you know, this toughness aspect of it too, especially in, in more contact sports, you know, your hockey your football, your lacrosse, um, you know rugby um there's definitely as aaron touched on there's there's a culture um and i didn't want to be weak i didn't want to be um soft you know i wanted to be tough i wanted to be known as as a tough guy because i wasn't <laughs> don't let anyone fool you i was not a a skilled hockey player by any means everywhere i got i got because i worked hard and i was willing to do the, the dirty things and being one of those players you know i i couldn't justify Sitting out. Hey, this is Mike Santi, co-founder of Can Recover Foundation, and a former Army hockey player. And you are listening to the Heads and Tails podcast.
1: I think the best treatment that I honestly had, if you if you want to call a treatment, was being introduced to Mike and being able to talk about it. So, both from mostly from a, a mental and emotional standpoint, having that outlet where I could just. Talk about what I was going through with someone who's experiencing the same type of thing, even if it wasn't exactly the same. That's what helped me more than anything in my recovery. Hey, this is Aaron Roca, the co-founder of Can Recover Foundation and former Babson College lacrosse player.
2: You're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports, health, and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, but you can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Hey, welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. Um, today, I'm excited to have on Aaron Roca and Mike Santee, who are both the co-founders of the Can Recover Foundation. And Mike is a former Army hockey player. Aaron's a former Babson College lacrosse player. And uh, guys, can you start off today by kind of you know going through how you guys met first off, and then kind of get into what you know the Can Recover Foundation is and and what what its mission is?
0: Yeah, sure thing. Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having us. Um, you know, this is. Um, you know, we're really grateful to be able to to share our stories, and thanks for providing the platform to allow us to do it. But uh, so, like you said, I'm I'm Mike Santi, and um, I met Aaron when I was a junior at West Point. Um, I was going through um, a prolonged concussion recovery, and I was you know struggling with it a bit, um, or not a bit, quite a bit, uh, with the emotional aspect and the physical aspect. And uh, one of my teammates, Shane. I'd mentioned that his brother was going through something similar. So um, Aaron and I started kind of talking. Um, Shane gave me his number and we talked more and more. And then we ended up meeting a few times and um, realizing that we had a lot in common. And uh, it really started to help us out, uh, at least help me out um, with with my recovery, knowing that there was someone else out there having some shared experiences.
1: Yeah. And and shortly after we were introduced, um, like Mike said, that was a huge benefit for each other. Just being able to provide support um, from that peer perspective, and that's really where the idea of Can Recover came from. Is we knew we wanted to do something to provide that support to others, and we thought about maybe writing a book, doing a blog, something of that sort, and then ultimately just landed on starting a nonprofit where we could adopt to the needs of of our audience and provide that support that we were able to give each other.
2: Yeah, really cool. And I, I've interviewed a lot of, uh, athletes who have struggled with post concussion syndrome. And one of the things that always comes up is kind of feeling like you're not alone, you know, like, and you guys are obviously kind of providing, you got got that from each other and then you're now trying to provide that as well. Um, so can you guys take us through some of like your concussion histories, just take us through the stories and, um, what, what, when, how they happened and everything like that?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So I've had a a few concussions. The first one I got was playing hockey in high school. And that one was only seven days or so before I was back on the ice. Um, The big ones didn't really come until I was playing lacrosse at Babson College. And the first one came during my sophomore year. And this was the type of blindsided hit elbow to, to the side of the head or if you saw it, you'd say that victim has a concussion, no doubt. And I was immediately taken off the field and went to the trainer, where I was diagnosed with a concussion, uh, that day or the day after. And that recovery was about five months before I was cleared to play again. And fortunately, for me as an athlete, that was right before our spring season started. Um, So I, I, I was happy to get back on the field, obviously, but didn't do a whole lot of, of physical training right before the season, which I think put me at risk for second impact syndrome. And Then the next year, fast forward to fall ball of my junior season, and it was actually on the same exact day. It was on October 7th where I was hit again, but this one was a lot different. This one was a shoulder-to-shoulder bump. I didn't even fall over, but I did feel immediately lightheaded and kind of like I was in a fog. And I refused to believe that that was another concussion. You know, I forced myself to believe it was because I didn't eat breakfast that morning. But two weeks later, I was diagnosed with another concussion. So I did everything I could to hide it, but the trainer ultimately brought me in. And this recovery lasted almost two years before I was working out again and I'll, I'll let Mike share a little bit of his context as well
0: yeah I um I estimate that over the course of my life I had probably between eight and 12 concussions both I mean from the documented ones and an undocumented um, but I would say the the four that were m- the most significant in my life um, were two were in Canada when I was playing junior hockey in Pembroke Ontario and, and two were when I was playing at West Point. And the the two most physically traumatic were both when I was in, in Pembroke. Um, I was driving to the net and got tangled up with a defender, uh, lost my balance and went head first into the boards. Um, lost consciousness. Um, I don't really remember anything from that event. I saw the video afterwards. I displayed the fencing response, saw my arms go straight up. Um, my memory went in and out for the rest of that day. The memory I do have is being violently ill and having just the most splitting headache I've ever had in my entire life, Uh, I went to the hospital and was given a return to play program, which I promptly ignored. Um, They gave me a timeline of weeks and I made it a timeline of days. I played again five days later. Um, I got into a fight on the ice and was knocked out again. So it was two concussions within two Losses of consciousness within five days of each other, and I didn't take any time off from the second one either. I just kept playing. Um, I boldface lied to my coaches, my training staff, said I was fine. Uh, nothing was wrong when it wasn't. Um, and you know, I, I think to this day, I still have um, you know effects from that, from those decisions that I made, um, specifically with uh, my speech and and my ability to to recall short term memories, but. So, um, those are the two most physically traumatic, the two where I, I lost consciousness and um the two when I was at West Point were much less physically traumatic in the sense I never lost consciousness. Um, one of them I, I received an elbow uh when I was on the ice. Um I just felt really foggy and and I just felt off and uh had just dull headaches that were pretty persistent. And um, so the the first one I got when I was a freshman. Um, I missed about three months, and it was just a, this constant fogginess, and I, I couldn't really articulate it, and I was really struggling to figure out if anything was wrong, because it wasn't the same feelings that I had before. And um, when I finally came back, it was, now even looking back on it, I didn't make the right choice. I, I got a, an MRI done, and uh, the doctor said, well, there's, you know, there's, no, there's no bleed, you know, we don't see anything. And in my mind, I took that to be, oh, you're fully recovered, go ahead and play, So I still had symptoms when I went back and played again um, and then played through the rest of that season. And then after my sophomore season, I got hit one last time, um, never lost consciousness, um, but same kind of thing. I just had these, this fogginess, this persistent fogginess and I just couldn't shake it. And I ended up dealing with that for about 24 months of, of, post-concussion syndrome. So that was, that was the last one that I had. And that was, you know, the most significant, which is um, noteworthy because it wasn't the most physically traumatic concussion that I've had. And, you know, I think people who've gone through it know that, you know, concussions aren't necessarily always alike, even if you're the same person receiving multiple concussions, your recoveries can be different. Your, your story can be different. Um, and that's, uh, that's really the, the four the major ones. I've had some other small ones that I'd And small is not the right word, obviously, but um, some other ones that I didn't treat as well, but those are the big four.
2: Yeah. And you said you had eight to 12 concussions. And when I think back to my 10 years of playing football, I have probably had at least just as many as that eight to 12. Um, Obviously the last one for me, was almost ended my life. Uh, But I saw some similarities between both of your stories as well. And, 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 and mine. So You both kind of weren't honest with your symptoms with your coaches and training staff and uh, stuff like that. And I kind of just wanted to dive into, you know, why those pressures to lie or why did you feel the need to withhold your symptoms and not tell people about it? Um, I know the answer for me. I'm just curious what the answer is for you guys.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it was as straightforward as I was an athlete and I wanted to play and that's all I cared about um and it was odd because and like mike we have we've both been through multiple um long stents of of post concussion syndrome and so i already knew what it was like to go through 5 months of post concussion syndrome and i was willing to sacrifice you know an, another long stent just so that i could play in the fall ball tournament um and i think it's it's interesting. It's this whole culture around, around sports, um, not wanting to let down your teammates, not wanting to disappoint your parents uh, who are coming in for that weekend's tournament and just wanting to, you know, maintain that, that aspect of remaining competitive competitive and remaining tough um, is really why I forced myself to try and hide it.
0: You know, I think, Aaron hit the nail right on the head. Um, You know, growing up, and when I say growing up, I mean until my adult years, until I was, you know, 24 years old. um, Who I was was a hockey player. What I did defined me. My whole life revolved around hockey. You know, I I went to school and played hockey, but you know, really, all I wanted to do was play hockey. I I tried to get good grades so I could still play hockey, and I I wanted to do well in the classroom so that way the coach you know, would be proud and that we could represent the team well, right? If we had, uh, you know, a good GPA as a team, that, that reflects well on the team. And, um, you know, so everything I did was was always some way circling back to to hockey. And, you know, being, being an athlete, you don't want to let your teammates down. So that was a big thing for me is, you know, I, I didn't want to ever let anyone down. I didn't want to be hurt you know, I thought I could contribute. Um, and there's this, you know, this toughness aspect of it too, especially in, in more contact sports, you know, your hockeys, your football, your lacrosse, um, you know, rugby. Um, there's definitely, as Aaron touched on, there's there's a culture. Um, and I didn't want to be weak. I didn't want to be um, soft. You know, I wanted to be tough. I wanted to be known as, as a tough guy because I wasn't <laughs> Don't let anyone fool you. I was not a a skilled hockey player by any means. Everywhere I got, I got because I worked hard and I was willing to do the, the dirty things. And being one of those players, you know, I I couldn't justify sitting out. And um, so that was definitely part of the you know the rationale. Like I said, I I straight up lied to my coaches and training staff. Uh, told them I was fine when I clearly wasn't. Um, but it's definitely a cultural thing, like Aaron touched on.
2: Uh, I interviewed Riley Cote, who's an enforcer, or who was an enforcer for in the NHL, and he said similar things to what you just kind of de- described. Um, and I, I usually save this question to the end, but I feel like it's kind of relevant. Um, what are both of your, like, what were your definitions of toughness as athletes when you were still playing sports? And what is your definition of toughness today? Yeah, well...
0: First of all, I think that's, I mean, that's an awesome question because like, you know, from your experience and all the folks you talk to is there's different definitions. Like I was talking to, to Aaron a little while ago and um, my definition of toughness in, you know, 2011, 2009, when I was playing hockey is significantly different than my definition of toughness now. Like, uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, when I was playing, especially when I was in Canada, my version of toughness was like, don't let anyone know you're hurt don't stay down. You get up, you know, rub some dirt on it, get back out there and you're fine. Like if you're hurting, you you don't let anyone know, right? You just, you push through it. And now I would say that it's almost the opposite. My definition of toughness, I would say my definition of toughness now is, is allowing yourself to be vulnerable, you know, doing something that makes you uncomfortable for the right reason. So now I would say being tough is, opening up to your family, opening up to your loved ones, opening up to your coaches, your friends, your teammates, and and sharing with them, you know, what's, what's going on, something that's not right about you. Um, you know, you're not feeling right. You have all these symptoms. Um, and, and cause being vulnerable is probably the scariest thing I could have done, you know, now 10 years ago. Um, but just doing something that, you know, is scary. That is uncomfortable but needs to be done. So that's kind of my little take on, I don't know, Aaron, how you feel about it.
1: Yeah, I I really couldn't have said it any better. Um, you know, back in, in high school, my definition of toughness was resilience through pain, through physical pain. And I actually got, got an award at the end of the year and to paraphrase it, it was, it was given to the athlete who was most willing to fight through pain and, you know, in order to, you know, remain part of the team and, and do what it takes to, um, get that team to victory. And, you know, when I look at it now, after my experiences, I would completely flip it like Mike did and, and call it resilience through adversity, um, and being able to make those hard decisions and, and cope with those and be vulnerable and open up to the, the people around you.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, those are great definitions and I definitely resonate with, with both of those. And yeah, like when I was 17, I thought like toughness was, yeah. Uh, not showing any pain, getting up as soon as you got hit, uh, hitting home runs, scoring touchdowns, like lifting the heaviest weights in the weight room. Like to me, that's what toughness was. And now, yeah, to be honest, like the toughest thing I could have done when I was 17 years old was tell my coach that my head hurt and I couldn't play. But you know, at the time you don't, you don't think that, um, Aaron, I'm curious that award that you received, um, does your team still give that award out? Um, <laughs> just because I'm thinking, you know, I, we used to have awards for, in football every week for like the hardest hit of the week. And I would always, I would be a contender for that award every single week. And I, I it was a part of my identity just mm-hmm. like it, it was for, it sounded like for you too. So I'm curious, like, you know, do they still give that award out or have the times kind of changed a little bit? I, I have no idea
1: if they do or not. That was that was about eight years ago. Um, it was actually an award from the school. And like I said, I'd, I'd be curious to go back to, you know, the award show um, pamphlet and reread the definition and see how I interpret it. But when I read it, when I, as I was sitting there as a 18 year old, that's exactly how I perceived it. It it used phrases like, you know, sacrificing for the team, which I took as, okay, I just broke my wrist, but I taped my stick to my hand. That's, that's me sacrificing for the team. Um, so I don't know if they offer it or, or not still, I'm sure they do, but it'd be very interesting to see how I perceive it now versus the way I did when I was in high school.
2: Yeah, that, that, that definitely is interesting. Yeah, because like your, your perceptions at 18 are much different than your perceptions, you know, 10 <laughs> years later or whatever. Exactly. Um, what was I going to say? You guys both also struggle with post concussion syndrome for two years. So, what kind of treatments did you guys go through to try to get yourself back?
1: Well, I, I went through, I, I started trying everything um, that I could. I mean, there really wasn't a a medical treatment, if you will, when we were going through it, there was initially, hey, lock yourself in a dark room, which now they're finding out is a bad thing. Um, And I went through acupuncture, I was taking different herbs to try and help my my memory, like ginkgo biloba. Um, And really nothing was was resonating with me in terms of of treatments. When I look at it in hindsight, and really what's helped me cope after a lot of the physical symptoms and helped me through the emotional symptoms. What works for me is practicing mindfulness and meditating. And really, I think that's something that will work for some folks um, through a recovery like this, but it really is something that resonated for me. But I do think it's different for everyone in terms of what types of treatments will work and what won't. Um, I think nutrition is a huge part of it as well, giving your body the fuels, um, to recover from any injury. But again, this is all 2020 in hindsight. It's nothing that I was actively doing when I was trying to recover.
0: Yeah. I think, um, you know, similar to what Aaron had, had mentioned when I was going through it, I don't, I don't know that there weren't necessarily any treatments out there just um I didn't really have any at my fingertips or I didn't partake in any um and then, like again Aaron, Aaron mentioned earlier for me it was it was just minimizing the stimuli like I was instructed to you know not uh be looking at screens not be reading or watching movies or looking at your phone too long uh don't exercise don't raise your heart rate um, you know basically live Um, and so that was really hard for me, especially as a student athlete at the time. I couldn't, you know, not read. I had to study. I had to do all these things so I could still go on with my life. And, um, what I found really helped me because, and I think the crux of the issue for a lot of student athletes is a lot of us are type A and we like to be able to, you know, control our fate and, and do the right things to make us better. Right. So before a game especially as a hockey player, we have routines. We do everything the right way to maximize the the chances that we can perform at our best. Um, and the struggle with concussion recovery, especially prolonged concussion recovery and post-concussion syndrome is, you know, you really, you just don't feel like you're in control. Like you're in the passenger seat of your own life. You're just kind of riding along as, as this thing progresses and as it takes its toll, but um, not a treatment necessarily, but Little coping mechanisms, mechanisms. Excuse me, that I used were were to try and take control of the little things to allow me to have a little sense of control overall. So, like uh, isolating variables, um, keeping routines. I kept because I couldn't remember pretty much anything um, when I was going through it. I kept a, a little journal with me that I would write down, um, you know, anything that I, basically everything that I needed to remember. Um, I also kept a, a headache log. Um, I wrote down, you know, when I get headaches, what time of the day, um, what I did that may have caused the headache, um, and allowed me to kind of see trends. And um, you know, Aaron and I have been discussing, you know, one of the, the hardest things about concussion recovery is you start to overanalyze everything. So as a, a pre concussed person, um, you know, you got headaches every now and again. You forgot things. Sometimes you, you went upstairs and you forgot what you went upstairs to get. Um, but when you're dealing with concussion recovery, you automatically assume that that's because of your brain injury. I forgot because I'm brain injured. And, you know, when you're recovering, you you think you maybe attribute too much to the brain injury and it, it kind of sets you back a little bit. But keeping consistency, keeping routines, trying to isolate variables, um, figure out what's a result of the brain injury or what's causing your, your symptoms, what's causing you to forget, what's causing you to get a headache. Um, definitely helped me. Um, so I don't know if that was a little, you know, too scatterbrained, but that's, no.
2: that was was good. And I'm curious, like what trends did you find? Um, like for me, it was, uh,
0: I was very like stimulus based. So anytime my heart rate did get up, I, I, did, I didn't feel great. Um, if I was, um, I was more sound uh sensitive i was i was light sensitive um but i was able to control those things with like dimming all the screens um and just trying to avoid but um sounds almost silence could be deafening so if there's ambient noise um in a room it it would start to drive me nuts because i'd be it, it just it felt like nails on a chalkboard or if there was loud noises like when i would go to the rink and try and watch practice the pucks um missing the net and hitting the glass or hitting the boards it felt like someone is driving a nail into my brain. Um, but for me, the isolating the variables and, and minimizing um, my physical activity, and then keeping meals constant definitely helps. I found sometimes if I didn't drink as much water, um, or if I didn't eat, um, you know, I wouldn't not eat, but if I didn't eat at the same time, I wouldn't feel right. So those are things I think the, the dehydration piece, if you don't drink enough water, you're not going to feel right. And I think that helped me too. A little bit, especially as I started to kind of come through it um, and realize if I broke routine and didn't drink as much water or did something different, then okay, I don't feel right, but maybe it's not because I I did such a good job of of keeping that routine constant.
2: And Aaron, what what were you gonna say before?
1: Yeah, the one thing I I just wanted to add is I think the best treatment that I honestly had, if you if you want to call a treatment, was being introduced to Mike and being able to talk about it. So both from mostly from a a mental and emotional standpoint, having that outlet where I could just talk about what I was going through with someone who's experiencing the same type of thing, even if it wasn't exactly the same, that's what helped me more than anything in my recovery. And, you know, I think having, Having that outlet and someone to talk to helped alleviate a lot of those physical symptoms that were driven by this negative attitude or this negative interpretation of them.
2: Okay, yeah, that's a good point. So do you guys think that we're making progress towards kind of a a new culture of toughness and kind of redefining what toughness really is? So... I will say, uh, yes and no, for sure. Um, you know, as a sports fan and
0: particularly as a hockey fan, um, I can see it going both ways. Um, so I still see, um, you know, for, for those of you who follow hockey, um, probably two, three weeks ago, uh, I saw Dustin Bufflin of the Winnipeg Jets, uh, take a hit clearly displaying, um, you know, concussion symptoms. Uh, he was wobbly on his feet, couldn't stand up. um, Went back to the bench, couldn't get onto the bench, was having a lot of difficulty, uh, was allowed to return to the game um, because he passed concussion protocol. Um, And uh, so that's where, you know, us as the athlete and as we mentioned before, like we're our own worst enemy because we want to get back out there. We want to help the team. Um, And I truly believe that we need to take it out of the athlete's hands. You have, um, you know, someone who makes the call for you to protect the athlete. Um, so in, in that aspect, there's still that same culture that exists. So someone who's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to get off. I'm not hurt. You know, what have you on the flip side, um, Michael Furland plays for the, the Calgary flames. And I was, I was very happy to see, not happy to see that he had concussion symptoms, but I was happy to see how he, um, he was honest and open with his coaches and with his training staff. So he had mentioned that he don't, he doesn't remember, remember, excuse me, um, any, particular hit any particular incident um but he started feeling foggy and for me that was that was the term that i i I latched on to and it was the best way i could use to articulate most of the symptoms i had because i just didn't feel right but he said he didn't feel right he felt foggy um so he said listen i i don't think i should be playing and so that is the to answer your question that's the yes that i see Uh, it is players realizing that you know their brains are important and you only get one of them um, and being able to do, and honestly, like we talked about toughness. That's a tough thing for a hockey player to do, uh, for any athlete to do. Say, listen, I know I didn't get knocked out. I don't remember getting hit, but listen, something's not right. And I need to take care of myself. So credit to him for making the hard decision, making the right decision, but also credit to the coaches and the, the training staff for, you know, allowing him to to listen to what his body said. So to answer your question, I think it's, it's yes and no. We're making strides, but also we still have a lot of ways to go.
2: Yeah. And I think that, that that's a good example because if you think back to when you were 18, 19, 20, you know, would you have listened to anyone tell you, you know, about concussions or what you should be doing, what you should be, you know, tell, you know, disclosing to the, the training staff and stuff like that? Or would you see a guy in the NHL in a position that you would like to be in one day, making a decision to take himself out and, you know, take put his health, you know, first? Uh, ahead of the team and ahead of everything else, you know, to me, that's probably the way that this culture is going to change. Not anything that someone's going to say or rules is going to be made, you know, uh, stuff like that. Uh, I, I agree completely. You know, you, so much of what you learn is, is from
0: what you see and the role models you have. Um, and I, I think that's a great point, Kevin, honestly. Um, you know, it's, it's got to change somewhere and it, it's, that change is starting to happen. It's people are going to see that. And if, if, you know, the sports media talks about the Michael Furlins in, in a positive light and they talk about, you know, the Dustin Bufflins, that incident in a negative light saying, hey, we should not have allowed this person to go back onto the ice or back onto the field. Um, you know, I think that's where it's going to start and we got we to gotta help influence this change any way we can.
2: Right. Right. And you said, like, take, take, you have to take the decision out of the athlete's hands. And I agree that, at, like, this point in time, you have to, but you can already see that a guy like Dustin Bufflin is taking it into his own hands, which is kind of cool to see. Um, yeah. And that's and where think, we ultimately want to get to. I
1: think that's, that's interesting too, though, because I think we see a lot of a mix of the two cultures at every level. So we see it definitely at the athlete level but we also see it, you know, mixed culture amongst athletic trainers, amongst uh, medical professionals, amongst parents for kids that are playing youth football, for example. And so I think what's driving the progress is also awareness and education. I mean, look at 10 years ago, how little we knew about concussions in the brain in general versus five years ago versus today. And when you talk about the media, even the media is sometimes misrepresents what a concussion is, what concussion protocol is. And, you know, one of the interesting things that concussion legacy foundation is doing the group that does all that CTE research, you know, they have a campaign that's educating reporters on how to accurately report on concussions. And so... I think we're at the very early stages of progress, but definitely progressing in the right direction.
2: Yeah. We've uh, I've talked about that uh, program with the concussion legacy foundation on one of my previous NFL injury report episodes that I do every week throughout the NFL season. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it is a big part of it because, you know, you know, people watching the game on TV don't know anything about concussions. And if the, and that, but that's, ultimately where they're getting their information from. So (laughs) if the people who are reporting it are giving them accurate information, uh, then, you know, everyone's going to be uninformed or misinformed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So before we get off the the toughness uh, topic, uh, Mike, I was curious, you know, being going to West point, you know, is there a heightened level of that culture of toughness there making it even harder to kind of disclose injuries? So I think so. And just being in the military now for
0: the last four years, um, that's definitely, it's a, it's part of the culture, right? You have to be tough because of, of our profession, what we're expected to do, you know, at West Point, once we graduate, you know, go into the operational army and, um, you know, fighting when the nation's wars as needed. Um, So that is a big part of it. And at school, it's a, that's a large part of, of what we do is, is toughness. We are the, the, the school is, is really great at trying to make sure folks are taking care of themselves, uh, that the cadets are taking care of themselves, um, because ultimately we're going to be leaders um, once you graduate. And so we're going to have to set the example. So they want people uh, to you know, be open and honest and, and get the, the medical help they need, because it's a huge problem in the military, is especially with senior leaders, um, people who've been in a while, is, is not getting medical help and um, seeing the repercussions down the road. Um, and yet to your point, it's, it is the army needs, not the army necessarily, but the folks in the armed services, um, have that same kind of athlete mentality where, um, especially as leaders, you know, we don't want to look weak. We don't want to look, uh, hurt. We don't want to look. So if we want to set the example, um, but at the same time, that's kind of setting a bad example. If we're not taking care of ourselves as we need, um, you know, it's for these young kids coming right out of high school. Um we got to do a little bit better, but, um, and specifically where the hockey team, um, our identity was, we were, we were a hardworking team. Like we weren't going to beat you with skill. Um, I think in recent years, the team's gotten a little more skilled and a little better. Um, but when I was there, it was our mentality was, was we're going to, we're going to, you know, extract our pound of flesh. Every time you touch the puck, we're going to finish our check. We're going to play it hard. We're going to play it clean, but you're going to know when you played us, if you win, You'll know it, and you'll you'll not want to play us again. And um, so that was part of it. Every every game, every practice, I wanted to embody that that culture. And um, you know, before I, I go any further, I, d- I do want to say that you know my my coaching staff was was super supportive. So I never felt any pressure um, from the coaching staff from Coach Riley uh, to play through any injury I had. I always had the utmost support from him. So it wasn't like that piece of it. I know that does exist uh, in other organizations and and other places where there's definitely that top down pressure to play through injuries when you're, when you shouldn't be. But, you know, I just want to say that that was not the experience I had, even when I was in Canada and played through some bad concussions. It wasn't because my coach um, pushed me to, it was the opposite. He, he called me into his office and it was like, I don't, I don't think you're ready. And I told him I'm 100% ready, put me in. Um, But yeah, the, the toughness piece, it's, it's a culture everywhere and it's intensified or it's more intense in certain places a little bit more than others. And, you know, in the armed services and, you know, at West point, there is there is that aspect of toughness that's that exists. And we just need to find that balance of, you know, you can be tough. And when you do your job serving the country, there's aspects of you need to be tough. You need to be able to push through things, um,
2: but you need to do it smartly and you need to know your limits. I just thought of something too where – you know, with, with concussions and trying to play through injuries and how that's kind of this glorified thing in our culture, you know, it comes at a cost. And in in some cases, you know, when you're playing hurt, you're playing at like 50% of your capacity of what you're capable out there on the field. So that could affect, you know, in, I'm a football guy. So I always say like, I, I do football analogies. So if, if I'm at fifty percent, I'm missing a block. That means that my quarterback's getting hurt. That means someone else that is is could be potentially getting hurt. And when I whereas if you you know sat out for a week or two to get yourself back to one hundred percent, someone can fill in for you. Maybe they won't be as skilled as you or whatever, it's just because of their place on the depth chart. But are, they're probably still better than you being hurt out there. So I was just thinking, in the military, it's the the stakes are even higher. You know to if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're, you know, out there in combat and you're at 50%, like that's someone's life on the line, either yours or someone else. So to me, it's just even more reason to kind of change that definition. I, I
0: agree completely. And, you know, Aaron, you can speak to this too, but everyone can speak to it as athletes, especially, you know, we live in the now, um, it's really hard for an athlete to make that decision. Like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna set out this game or I'm gonna set out these couple games, these practices, because I want to make sure I'm ready to go like for the next seven seven games, ten games, however many, versus I need to play now, and that's gonna put you at jeopardy for not only the next 10 games or you know, possibly longer, as Aaron and I and as yourself experienced, maybe even the rest of your career. So that's that that piece that athletes and definitely in the military too, people um we we live in the now. We wanna be able to help now, we wanna be able to you know, make a dif- difference now, but taking a step back. And Aaron alluded to this earlier being able to take a step back, get a little perspective, make a decision that's best for the long run because you're trying to help your team, you're trying to help your unit, your platoon, your company, your organization. But if you're trying to throw yourself back in there, like you said, um, you know, you might not actually be helping because you're going to, you know, miss an assignment, miss a block, you know, lose coverage. Um, in hockey, you might throw someone a bad pass, get them laid out. Um, So it's definitely, we need to be able to help influence folks to know that there's enough risk associated with playing through these kinds of injuries to be able to, you know what, maybe I should take a step back and and let myself rest for the reasons you mentioned, maybe hurting other players, hurting the team, maybe having a turnover, but also for your own health.
2: Right. So I know a big thing with the reason why I started this podcast was almost to like, find ways to heal my own demons that I fight on a daily basis in terms of the mental and emotional toll that injuries and concussions in particular can take. So I was wondering if you guys can kind of uh, share with me and, and the listeners, you know, what that mental emo- and emotional struggle was like for you guys.
1: Uh, at best, it was hell. <laughs> it, it was it was pretty terrible. those Those were some of the darkest days of my life in terms of having waves of depression in terms of being more anxious and particularly more irritable with the people that were closest to me, my teammates, my friends, and, and my family. Um, and so it, it was extremely difficult and you could tell that it was extremely difficult for the people around me as well. And part of that was because of the fact that I wouldn't share what I was going through. I didn't want to talk to anyone about it. And I think that did more harm for me as well. And really, it just, it was this sense of loneliness and and isolation. And so, for example, I was was told to drop out of school, but I ended up staying in. But one of my um, worst physical symptoms was sensitivity to light. And when you're in a classroom, there's bright lights and you're looking up at a projector screen. And I actually wore sunglasses during class. And my classmates, you know, a year later told me they thought that I was just trying to promote a sunglasses business. Um, And they thought I was kind of quote unquote too too cool for school. Um, And that wasn't the reality. And it's, you know, I, I didn't I didn't share with anyone, you know, what I was what I was feeling and, and why I was doing the things that I was doing, um which took a toll. And really that's the impetus behind why we started Can Recover. And like I said earlier, the best treatment for me was being able to talk with someone else who's going
0: through it, like Mike. Yeah. And- I'll completely echo Aaron's Sediments for, for me, the, you know, being an athlete and we've been talking about toughness quite a bit and it seems to be, you know, the, the theme of, of kind of what we're talking about, the, the physical symptoms like weren't insurmountable, right? Like I, I didn't, I wasn't in so much pain that I couldn't function. um You know, it was just the, the fogginess, the persistence, but what really took me out was was the emotional side like Aaron talked about feeling completely isolated and alone and uh, for a lot of athletes especially athletes who play their sport most of their lives or up until their adult lives and uh, we get this what's called identity foreclosure you know it's something you identify with with your sport you know for me for hockey hockey formed really who I was it it taught me how to be a teammate it taught me how to be a friend it taught me how to work hard it taught me um, you know how to. Really, how to how to live? Everything I did, I always, like I said earlier, brought back to hockey. And then when that's taken away from you, um, and and with everything else compounding it, the fact that it's an invisible injury, so your teammates don't see you with a sling on, they don't see you with crutches, they just see you, and they don't understand what you're struggling with unless you tell them. It it just it compounds everything. Everything gets worse. So you start to withdraw further and further into yourself and into your darkness, which is not healthy. Um, and so i started to feel really detached from the people that were closest to me i pulled away from my family i pulled away from my teammates i pulled away from my friends and at its darkest i felt like there was no hope because you know we talked about earlier feeling in control i didn't have any control i felt like i was in the passenger seat and it was it was such a dark time honestly for most of those 24 months i i thought every single day about killing myself like it's it's really hard for me to say i'm sorry i'm a little emotional but now that I've pushed through it a little bit. It's, it's so crazy to see that, that state that I was in because I, I felt so alone. And then after talking with Aaron, it allowed me to, to really realize that, you know, there, there was some hope out there and there were some people who had some shared experiences. I really did think I was the only one. Um, And then when I finally opened up a little bit to my now wife um, and some, some family, it really, really helped. But that darkness, it was just, it was so all encompassing and it completely changed who I was. Um, And, and once I found Aaron, once I found that support, once I found that lifeline to know that, you know what, I'm not alone. And somebody has these, these shared experiences, you know, we just wanted to share the help that it provided us with others. So, um, you know, that's, that's all I can, you know, really talk about is, is how much reaching out to others, reaching out to peers can really help. Well, this podcast is, is is so helpful because it allows people to, you know, to share their stories and feel some sort of connection with somebody else, and and that can really help. Because that really helped me. Like, I, I don't want to sound dramatic, but you know, if I didn't have the the, if I didn't reach out to Aaron, or if Aaron and I weren't connected when we were, if I didn't open up to my wife when I did, like, things could be a lot different for me right now. You know, um, so.
2: Well, thanks guys for having the toughness to be vulnerable and to share those stories. And I, you know, I'm sorry you guys were at those low points and I, but I empathize with you too. Cause I was, I was there too. I don't know. I, I don't know if I was ever going to kill myself, but it was more of a feeling of like, I didn't care if I died kind of thing. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's a struggle. And I, I know that by you guys sharing that on this podcast, you know, some Athlete out there who's listening to this and struggling with post concussion syndrome, searching for any kind of you know information, will hear your words and say, i "Exactly, I'm not alone, and that I'm going to get through it." So, can you guys kind of tell us like how you guys are fostering those kind of conversations through uh, Can Recover?
1: Yeah. So, the bulk of our support comes by sharing people's stories, and what's really interesting and really heartwarming is when we get messages from athletes or from parents of an athlete who's going through it. And it says just that it says, you know, thank you guys for what you do. You know, reading the stories of that are on your website helped me realize that I wasn't alone and that's all that I needed. And so in terms of the direct peer to peer support, I mean, we'll connect people with You know, either ourselves or someone else in our network who's willing to just have these one on one conversations with them. Um, but really the, the biggest thing for student athletes that we're seeing and for other people suffering post concussion syndrome is just knowing that you're not alone. And so that's really what our focus is and, and what our mission is, is to provide that peer to peer perspective support.
2: Okay. And I also had a question too, because you guys both alluded to the fact that with both lacrosse and uh, hockey, respectively, that it was all you guys cared about for each of you. And I think that's kind of where the danger lies, because that's how it was for me with football. It's you're so laser focused on one thing, and anything that might keep you away from that sense of identity, you know, you'll do anything to, you know, work work or get around that. So. I guess like do you guys have any advice for athletes who might be in that situation as well in terms of finding an identity? Like what was your transition to life after sports like? I mean that that's a uh, that
0: is a huge a huge issue. And I think in professional sports you're seeing it a little bit more. You hear some stories about like the players' associations um providing, you know, services to help people adjust, you know, to life on the other side, if you will. Um, but you know, for me it was it was really tough. Like I said, hockey was my whole life. And I really struggled with like specifically was, you know, I knew my career was going to end someday. Hockey doesn't last forever, but the fact that my hockey career ended on not my terms, so they didn't end on my terms. um, That was really hard for me. I never got that last game. I never got to say goodbye. Um, And like I said, it's, you know, if you've played a sport, you understand it's your whole life. Your teammates are the people you see the most. You know, you, you spend most of your time in that team environment, either on the ice, in the gym or on the field, in the gym, in meetings, watching video. Um, so to kind of be removed from that, it's just, it's a very traumatic experience and it's, it's something that doesn't, you know, it's not easy. You can do all the, um, you know, the, the right things you can try and, and, use all the coping mechanisms you can but it's not going to be easy but the the biggest thing for me was just like we talked about leveraging your support system um just being open and honest and and talking with people and sharing your feelings and, and allowing them to help you you know um because like i said i was i was so miserable during my dark times and it was all, all these different factors kind of playing into each other was the fact I didn't feel right. The fact I didn't know I was ever going to get better. But you know, a large part of that was the fact that my life was turned on, on its head. It was turned upside down by the fact that I could no longer play the sport I loved and being around the sport I loved all the time, not being able to play. It was honestly hard too. So for some folks, maybe they just need a kind of a clean break, like rip the bandaid off, just take some time, pull yourself away. Um, some people may need, to be there all the time and feel like they're still part of it. And that's just up to you uh, to figure out what works for you, but honestly just have a support system and, and know it's not going to be easy, but um, I've, you know, right now I'm, I'm a very happy person in my life and I realized that hockey was a big part of my life. And I'm very thankful that, you know, it taught me all the life license it did, but you know, as a soon to be 30 year old, I'm, I'm, I have a life outside of hockey and it took me a while to really grasp that, that, you know, hockey was a part of my life, not my whole life. Um, that was, once you start to kind of realize that there's other things out there, you can try and develop some new hobbies or, or find something you like a little bit more, but, um, it's, it's not easy, but it can be done. You just need to know that, you know, your, your life as you know it because of your sport, it's not actually your whole life. It just seems that way. So, Mm -hmm. when did
2: you start to get to that realization, Mike?
0: Um, Honestly, I don't know that there was ever this, you know, um, single moment. It was just, um, it was really dark. And honestly, it was when my symptoms started to get better, I think. Um, You know, I was able to start doing some of the other things that I enjoyed. Um, You know, in life, I was able to actually kind of go outside and do things instead of raising my heart rate and getting headaches. And um, so that helped a lot. It was when I couldn't do anything, like I said, it was one of the compounding um, factors. Was I couldn't do anything, so that was why I was struggling. Excuse me, but it was it was really when I started to feel a little bit better. I made myself go out and, and try new things. Um, like I, I started playing guitar. I tried to find some hobbies that I enjoyed, um, and then honestly, it was it was very ca- cathartic to me to be able to come out of, of that post-concussion syndrome as I started to recover, um, I, I kind of got a new appreciation just for life in general. You know, once I, I reflected back on the dark times and how close I was to um, to losing everything, um, you know, that really made me appreciate life as a whole and not just life as a hockey player. You know, I realized I'm thankful for so much more. I have this wonderful family. I have these wonderful friends and this awesome support system. Um, so that, that really only came to me when my recovery, you know, started to kind of come to a close.
2: Um, but that was, that was it. Cool. What about you, Aaron? What was your transition to uh, life after lacrosse? Like,
1: yeah, I, I took the, the other approach that Mike mentioned of ripping off the band Um, it took me a few months to officially decide that I wasn't going to try to return to lacrosse. Now the doctors were withholding me for four months at that point. So, um, I didn't really see an an end to the tunnel but i think what i struggled with the most in that decision was how it connected me to my family a lot of you know younger competitive athletes come from an athletic family and when i made that decision i just broke down because i felt like it was cutting my ties and my relationship to my two older siblings it was you know cutting a tie that I have to my parents who would visit for every single sports game. And now I just lost that whole aspect of my relationship with them, um, let alone my teammates and, and my friends as well. And so for me, I, I completely stepped away from the team. I completely stepped away from going to practices, watching games. Um, I actually didn't go back to a Babson lacrosse game until after I had graduated. And so that's what I needed to get through that, um, to get through that decision and to get over, um, over the fact that, you know, sports were now out of my life and that was no longer a part of my identity. But similar to Mike, it took me years, probably two to three years to really understand that that's out of my control. And while it didn't end on my terms. I didn't get to finish out my last two years of lacrosse or really of sports. Um, it is what it is. And it took me so long to realize I can only control what I have control over. And that that's what really helped me kind of transition into life afterwards into finding appreciation for what I had, finding appreciation for the fact that I could now go hiking more. I was able to study abroad um, in college when I wouldn't have been able to if I was playing lacrosse. And I found all these outlets that I didn't realize that I would that I would truly enjoy. Uh, truly enjoy. One of them being writing poetry was a huge outlet for me, and it it was. It was. it's not easy. It's not easy at all. That's one of the hardest things that I've had to do is transition to life after sports. And it's overall though, in hindsight, made me a much stronger, a much resilient, a much tougher in my new definition person than I was. Um, and I couldn't be more grateful for where I am today and, and the path that I've taken to get here.
2: Yeah, Aaron, that was really interesting points that you made, especially in in terms of like kind of your relationships with the family. And that's something that honestly, I don't think I've ever really talked about on uh, the podcast. That's a great point that you make. And I'm sure other people can relate to that. Um, The other things I noticed the similarities between your transitions to life after sports and my own is the need for a creative outlet. You know, it seemed like Mike had the guitar. He kind of shifted towards that you found poetry, you have that kind of creative outlet. Um, also both of, or all of the the transitions my probably took like six or seven years before I started realizing, like I'm more than just a a football player, but either way, like it takes time, you know? So I think you can't expect to be told that you can't play your sport anymore and then expect like next week to be, you know, whatever, uh, you know, a new skill or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the other thing is it's really either like 50, 50 in terms of like, whether ripping the bandit off and just kind of like completely getting away from your sport, uh, or trying to immerse yourself back into that sport to still hold some sort of relationship with it. Like some works for others. You know, I work, I worked as a student manager for the Rutgers football team when I was an undergrad there. And at times I thought it was good because I got to like throw the football around as part of a team still kind of. And other times, like on game days, I'm like, this sucks. Like, (laughs) because I I just wanted to play. Uh, So it's, yeah, you you just got to do what feels right to you. It sounds like. Yeah. And to to further that point too, and, you know,
0: there's not any right answer to that because no way is it going to be is one going to feel significantly better? It's just, it's the, really the lesser of two evils, right? So I was, it really hurt. I see, I unlike Aaron, I stayed with the team. The coaching staff um, was just super supportive and they, they made me feel valued. Like they gave me roles, as a video coach. Um, and so again, part of that toughness piece and being a part of a team, I didn't want to let them down. I wanted to stay there um, and, you know, help the team in any way I could, but it was really hard for me. And, and there was times where I felt like I just wanted to rip the bandaid off, but I know that, you know, like Aaron, you can definitely attest to this. Like the band aid (laughs) didn't really help. It's not, it's not the, it worked better. It just is the lesser of two evils. Like I was less miserable being completely away from my sport, not being reminded of it. But you know, like you said, Kevin, when on game days or during practice, everyone's putting on their gear and going out and I wasn't, that was really hard. It was just a constant reminder that I I wasn't able to play that sport that I love so much. And, um, So, you know, that's really, it. it's just, it's what works better for you. There's, there's no easy answer. There's no easy way. And it's a long-term process, exactly like you said.
2: Uh, just in hearing kind of uh, what you were just saying, Mike, I, I kind of reflected back on my own experience and kind of thought of, I almost feel like because I kept that band-aid on, that it prolonged my transition to life after uh, football in that I was still able to hold on to that football identity for a little bit longer, but in doing so, it kind of kept me from growing in other areas. It, do you, does that make sense? No, it makes sense completely.
0: And I, honestly, I agree with that a lot. And I think it's it's kind of maybe even comes back to what we were talking about a little earlier about the the short term versus the long term. So maybe, you know, in the short term, you want to stay a part of that that group for a little longer and knowing it's going to make your ultimate transition a little easier more drawn out but I know I agree with you completely I think um, you know had the situation played out a little differently for me and I wasn't offered the opportunity to, to stay a part of the team I probably would have pulled the band-aid off because um, it would have been it wouldn't have been the constant like visual reminder of, of what I wasn't doing if I could have just not gone um, it would have been a little easier to just I think maybe kind of try and put it out of sight out of mind, but. Yeah, I do think that maybe staying a part of it prolonged it a little bit, but you know, I don't necessarily regret it. Yeah, yeah,
2: I agree because I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's more because because I'm just like playing scenarios out, right? Like, say you ripped the band-aid off, and then you know you had no support, you know, so maybe you didn't have Aaron's brother to tell you that, hey, you know, my buddy's going through this. So when you're at that low point you're at like a really low point that you can't get out of. Whereas, you know, being a part of a team still, it might prolong your identity shift, but at the same time you still have more support by, by doing so. So I think you got to just stick with whatever feels right. (laughs) Yeah. And
1: Kevin, that's actually exactly what, what happened for me is when I ripped that bandaid off, I wasn't introduced to Mike yet. And it was extremely painful emotionally. Um, having to deal with that I mean I spent a lot of time just in my room alone I wasn't talking to friends I wasn't talking to family and it was extremely depressing and Mike you're completely right it's it's the lesser of two evils really in terms of which path you take and when I look back at at my approach in hindsight I don't know if it was the right or the wrong decision either I don't know if it would have been easier for me to stick around with the team and, and get more involved um, which I had the support and the opportunities to do. But you know, when I was going back and and watching practice, I just felt this wave of emotion that I, I needed to escape from, which is why I ripped the bandaid off.
2: Yeah. It's it, it, like, like we said, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think you got to go with what, 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 if, what it feels like, but I just want to share this one thing. I, I built out a new website for uh, my high school's football team. And I've kind of turned it into like a little bit of a business um, with doing it for other teams, but I kind of used my high school football team as like the the test dummy. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to, I went to a game this year. It was like 10 years after I played and even just going there to like take videos for the website I got that same feeling of that that emotional wave that you kind of like talked about. That I'm like, I just don't want to be here. Yeah, like it just doesn't feel good. I feel like crap being here. Like because yeah, that thing was like ripped away from me. It wasn't like it was senior night and that was the last game we were playing. It was just like no. I woke up one day thinking we were going to play for another few weeks, and no, I that was it. So I literally just like left in the middle of the game. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be here anymore. So I just <laughs> left. Um, but yeah, you got to go with your gut. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so but as we kind of wrap up the conversation here, did you guys have any other injuries that you guys struggle with throughout your careers? Um, Cause we, we, I interview a lot of athletes who have injuries in addition to uh, concussions as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's your standard broken wrists and, um, and pulled muscles or sprained ankles for me. But when I compare them, they were minuscule compared to the, the prolonged concussion recovery and i think the biggest reason being is i broke my wrists collectively 5 times and i knew every single time my wrist is broken i'm going to get a cast i'm going to tape a glove around it and in 1 week i'll be able to play in 4 weeks i'll be able to take the cast off and in 6 weeks i'll be back to normal so there was a very finite time frame to it and it was a very visible injury and when i compare that to the concussions like i said my first one i was i was back on the ice within 7 days and so when i got my second one and it was 5 months that was a completely different experience for me and then when i got my third diagnosed and it was almost 2 years and i never returned to sports that level of uncertainty and the invisible aspect of it and the emotional aspect of it was like no other injury that i had experienced
0: it's powerful yeah uh i mean like we've been doing most of the most of the discussion so far i mean aaron and i um kind of echo each other's sentiments a lot and this is no different um so like anyone else I, i had the same amount of injuries and i completely concur with what he was saying like exact same things but uh what i will add is um it's interesting now that i'm you know getting a little older to see um the effects of of the the impact on my body in other ways so not not on my brain so um playing through the the more you know like musculoskeletal injuries um you know at the time so like right now i'm i'm almost 30 i'm 29 years old um i feel like i'm 50 and it's because of the uh, so the the first practice back from my second to last concussion um, after missing three months, my very first practice back, I got taken down and got my leg caught in the net and something popped in my knee and I just absolutely refused to be hurt. Like there's no way that I'm hurt again. This is my first practice back, not a chance. And so now, you know, fast forward seven years or so, however long it's been, um, I can't really <laughs> walk upstairs too well and I can't get out of chairs, um, like certain things because of that knee, because I just refuse to be hurt, right? Um, you know, like my body feels different now than I think it would if if I didn't play the sport. You know, that's not saying I regret playing the sport, but it's interesting to see how um, those other injuries have manifested over time and the effects that I'm seeing because I didn't do the things that I should have to allow myself to recover. So it's the same for the brain, right? If you don't allow yourself to recover, you don't make the right decisions. You know, it's going to have impacts. And, you know, I I think it's important to know that it's, there are those similarities where, like, you just need to do the right things to help yourself recover. What I should have done is that first practice back, I should have saw the doc said something like, Hey, I just messed my knee up, but I didn't. Um, Even after all that with my head, because I was just, I refused to be hurt again. And so, uh, you know, I'm thankful that it wasn't my head that first practice that got hurt, because I don't, I want to say I wouldn't have gone back, but, you know, it was hard, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's all kind of similar in that way.
2: Yeah. I always say that too, because I had a knee surgery a few years back and it all stemmed from that same mentality that I had with the brain injury, you know, because I didn't tell anyone that I was having headaches. I was trying to be a freaking tough guy. I almost killed myself on the football field, but I didn't learn my lesson from that. I didn't learn it until I did my, I hurt my knee because I had other little lingering issues going on. that I wasn't addressing. I was just like fighting through them for whatever reason. And then I, it turned into a bigger thing that I needed surgery for. So it's like at the end of the day, if something, if you if you don't feel right, say something, mm-hmm. um, take care of it now as opposed to when it, you know, balloons and becomes an even bigger issue. Uh, all right. So where can people uh, and listeners connect with you guys online and support Ken Recover? So folks can obviously visit our website.
1: It's www.canrecover.org. That's C-A-N at the beginning. Um, Or even better, if they want to follow us or like us on Facebook and Instagram, we're fairly active on those social media accounts, and particularly with sharing people's stories. So one of the things that, that we would love to ask your listeners to do um, if they're going through a concussion or if they have a story about their own recovery, you know, that's what we're looking for. So if anyone out there can go on to our website and share that with us, we'd love to, you know, disseminate that to our community because that's what really helps.
2: Great. Uh, so thank you guys for coming on the show and sharing your story and also for creating can recover to provide resources for uh, athletes who are going through what what you guys uh, overcame. And uh, I appreciate you guys coming on. Yeah, yeah thanks thank you a, very a ton much for, having for
0: having us. Like I said, it's uh It's great.